Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. You're quiet. My goodness. Oh, I'm going to have to bring this up a notch. So, I hear there's a birthday here somewhere today. Oh, <laughs> happy birthday, Allie. I was told to do that. <laughs> you can blame Josh later. Hey, we had a we had a great time. The elders and I down uh, down the hill uh, at uh, in the what was it Palm Desert, Palm Springs, whatever, somewhere with palm trees, um, and uh, we had a great time. It was a lot of hard work, and uh, we are uh, we're looking forward to um, just presenting a lot of stuff at our vision and planning meeting. So I encourage you, if you're not a member, please become one and uh, and be able to participate in the. Um, and the way our church works in the life of IBC. So, um, so yeah, we had a great time, and, and uh, we had a guest speaker here, Brad Dacus. How many of you guys enjoyed Brad Dacus? He was great, wasn't he? He, he, he actually, uh, I talked to him on the phone the next day, and he just had nothing but good stuff to say about our church body. So um, that was pretty cool. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was just amazing that he, with, with everything going on, with all the work that they have going, um, that, uh, that he still was able to take the time to come up and be with us on Sunday. And, uh, so yeah, if you get a chance to, to, uh, keep up with them, uh, through your emails and that, and, uh, contribute to their work, that would be amazing. We are in Luke chapter 1. Uh, Brad kind of kicked off a little bit. It was like kind of like a pre-kickoff of the, of the Gospel of Luke. Today we're going to really kick it off with a prologue. And what that is is just the very beginning of Luke where Luke is establishing his credibility as a historian um, and giving us a reason for why he's writing. So if you're in Luke chapter 1, let us go ahead and read. It says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Holy God, we ask this morning that you would join us as we seek to know you more through the reading and the study of your word. Draw us to your goodness by what we can observe and what we must trust by hearing. Let our understanding concern our faith and our faith deepen our understanding. Cause us to see goodness and grace as we prepare our hearts to dig into the gospel of Luke for many months to come. We come humbly before you to hear what you have provided for us, to wrestle with our own hearts and attitudes and to be drawn to your holiness. God, may we be people who know what we believe, why we believe it, and who can articulate those things so that more will come to know. We gladly now submit our hearts and minds and our attention to you, our gracious God, as we open your scriptures to learn from you to know you more through what you've given us to know you by. We give over this time to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, West Hemet around 2008, 
Denise and I lived in what's called the Four Seasons neighborhood, which at the time was a clean, quiet neighborhood. And I just drove through there a couple of weeks ago to see it, and it is no longer that way. But anyhow, one late, I'll hold the jokes on that. But one late afternoon, uh, a few nice young men on bicycles showed up at the door. They were neatly dressed in white shirts with little black ties and little name tags. And upon answering the door, Denise and I were faced with the question, would you like to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Of course, come on in, I said. Um, so the boys came in and immediately met the dog. Um, th we had a, this like Arctic wolf that was like, well, this big. She was huge, but she was like this big, white, beautiful dog and made them feel right at home. And we didn't have six kids. Uh, we had zero, so the house was clean and comfortable. And uh, the dog made them feel right at home. Denise uh, actually grew up Mormon um, on her dad's side of the family. And I, so her and I sat and listened to this presentation uh, until these young men came to a point where they had obviously horribly butchered the meaning of a Bible verse. And I wish I could remember which one that was, but I can't. But I asked, are you sure that's what it means? And your man says, well, yes. And began to offer an explanation that did not take any context into account or demonstrate any working knowledge of the language employed whatsoever. So I grabbed my Greek Bible, my lexicon, my analytical lexicon, and we began to work through it. And once we had done that, I asked if they still thought that it meant what they said it did. And I did not get yes, and I did not get no. I got, wow, we've never had anyone pull Greek out on us before. Now, let me just say this. That's not, that's the, that's what I used in that context, but when you're dealing with LDS people, you don't necessarily need to know Greek or, you know, have a Bible degree or anything like that. Know what you know and be confident in it, um, because it honestly isn't always that hard. Um, but First Peter 3.15 says this, it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So be kind, be respectful, and offer what truth you have. And that truth is going to be powerful because remember that you're not going to mess up the wor work the Holy Spirit is doing. Like, you're not going to, like, try to, you know, give them truth and go, ooh, how do I become a Mormon? That's not going to happen. The Holy Spirit is powerful and he's doing a work. So these men, young men, they enjoyed our conversation so much that they began coming week after week. And we would grill for them. And I think we even, I can't remember, I think we even played games with them one night. I can't even remember. We just loved hanging out with these young men. They were great kids. And uh, so uh, eventually they began to ask me the theological questions, Denise and I both. And things were going great. Then after about eight weeks or so, they show up with the leaders of their ward, all, armed with all kinds of literature and DVDs. And so Denise and I skimmed over their apologetics pamphlets and watched their video. And I'm not going to go into details, but most LDS apologetics works are not, I mean, they're really only convincing to people that are, only, that are already convinced. And that's not to knock on the Mormons. They're, they're usually the nicest people you could ever hope to meet. They're, they're great people. Um, they just have some fundamentally 
unbiblical and unsupportable doctrines that, that a biblical Christian must reject. So, but we can still love them. So anyhow, after gently pointing out the logical flaws in their material, uh, I began to address the historical and literary evidence for the Bible. They all affirmed the reliability of Scripture, uh, and they said that they believed the Bible. And so then I asked about the reliability of the Book of Mormon. And they gave Denise and I the story about the angel Moroni and Joseph Smith translating the golden tablets. So I asked where I could find evidence of the golden tablets besides the claims of one man. And then I contrasted the need to trust the word of one man with our long line of manuscript evidence as well as archaeology, history, and records of astound an astounding number of eyewitnesses to the events that are recorded in Scripture. And this is what I asked. I said, if you were to find a contradiction between the Bible, which we've established is true, and the Book of Mormon, which relies on the truthfulness of one man, what would you believe, the Bible or the Book of Mormon? Well, the Book of Mormon, replied the leader of the group. So I said, why would you choose the one you have no evidence for? Well, I can just feel it in my heart. You know, when I read it, I just, I know that God is speaking to me, and I just, I can just sense that it's true. Okay. But Christians say the same thing about the Bible. Jews say the same thing about the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. Muslims say the same thing about the Quran. That aspect of intuitive faith exists in every world religion. So how can you be certain that yours, the one with no demonstrable evidence, is true? And so the man looked at me and he replied, so you just believe based on the facts? Like there's nothing in your heart, no feeling or emotion or anything? And I have to be honest, I didn't see that one coming. And so I sat there for a minute. I had to think about it for a minute. And I kind of prayed and thought for a second. And I, I responded like this. I said, I placed my faith in Jesus because I've tested the scriptures and found them to be true. I'm a pastor because of what Jesus has done in my life. Young elders all looked at their leaders who kind of all leaned back and the top guy looks at me and he kind of says, I'm not going to lie, that was a really good answer. <laughs> so I'll give credit to God for that one because I couldn't have come up with it. But anyhow, they all left and the boys never came back to our door. Um, but we did see them walking down Florida Avenue one day and pulled over to say hi. We said, oh, we miss you guys, you know. And, and they looked around and they said, well, we, we miss you too, but we're kind of not allowed to talk to you anymore. <laughs> I said, oh, that's too bad. We really enjoyed hanging out with you guys. So they all kind of like sneakily looked around every direction. And they said, well, if you can hide our bikes, we'll come over. <laughs> Oh, they were, they were nice kids. Um, anyhow, you can still pray for them. I don't remember all of their names. I do remember the one. His name is Elder Lamb, because they're all elders, right? Um, so uh, anyhow, the thing is, you see that, that faith and reason are not conflicting values. God has given us reason to trust that his word is true. Faith and reason work together so that we might be convinced of who God is, how he operates, and what he requires of us. So like any New Testament manuscript, the Gospel of Luke would have been written on a parchment called papyri, which degrades extremely quickly. 
So the chances that there are any surviving manuscripts of the original are extremely slim. That said, though, we have some incredibly early manuscripts, and for Luke, we have quite a few papyri fragments that are in surprisingly good condition. And they date back to probably within 100 years of the original. They didn't use Xerox machines back then. They couldn't afford them, so they would write everything out by hand. They would copy it by hand, right? So um, we have this astounding number of ancient manuscripts on papyri and other parchment that can be traced back to different you know, parents, parent manuscripts, with relatively few manuscripts, or, or I mean, r rather, with, with very few uh, variants. And what that means is that although we cannot get our fingers on the original, we can reconstruct it very easily with very few variant readings and very few questions. And of those few places that a question exists, none of those have any effect on any core teaching of the Christian faith. Now, that's a lot to swallow all at once. But that holds true for all the New Testament, and we don't, we don't need to hide from any of the questions. In fact, any noteworthy variant reading will be footnoted in most of your Bibles, um, most of your physical Bibles. And that's, that's why I encourage you to be reading a good physical Bible. The Bible app on your phone probably doesn't offer the same quality annotations that a high-quality physical Bible will offer. So... And, and also, read multiple translations. Don't just read trans, uh, uh, one translation. You, you're going to learn what the translators were trying to work through. And by doing that, it's almost as good as knowing the original languages. Because you'll see what they were trying to, trying to translate, trying to work through. Now, the message of Luke's original historical gospel exists clearly in the texts that we do have. Well, there are some on the fringes who question everything there really is very little question that Luke is the actual author of Luke and of Acts, which together are more like kind of a single two-volume work than two separate works. Sometimes we read them separately, but they kind of come together. Um, and that's why I plan to do that here. We're going to go through Luke, and then we'll go through Acts. So you're going to be here a while, guys. Um, so how do we know about Luke? Uh, or rather, what do we know about Luke? R.C. Sprawl said this. He said, Luke, as we know, was a physician and a missionary. But most importantly, Luke has emerged as one of the most important, if not the most important, historians of the ancient world. Luke is writing a scholarly history to affirm what has been observed and experienced. And by doing so, the reader should be convinced, and that will help to lead to faith. Luke is reasonable and faithful. We can no more read Luke as wrote scholarship as we can read it as a merely spiritual book. Faith and reason are married and feed one another as far as Christians are concerned. Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we, escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. So that passage there makes me think that the author of Hebrews probably was not an eyewitness, but was reporting many, in many ways like Luke was. 
Luke is one of the most historical works, both out, both in and outside of the Christian faith. If, and, and if Luke is true, it must be transformative. The facts lead us to trust God. Our faith confirms our belief in the facts. When I was about five, our neighborhood had this, a swimming pool. Um, our neighbor, they built a swimming pool. There's like a newer track. And they and, and we all all the neighborhood kids took swimming lessons there, and you know and the weekends all the parents everybody was there in that backyard because that was the one with the pool, and I I was turning out to be quite a good swimmer for a really tiny skinny kid, um, like I was so skinny that when I turned sideways I disappear. I was like flat Stanley with a red afro. And I was all over the shallow end of the pool. I didn't touch the bottom. I couldn't touch the bottom. I was too little. But I was just swimmer, swimming swimmerton everywhere. I could do it. I was good. And all the dads, though, they would, they would all hang out and drink their beer at the deep end of the pool. And, and I wouldn't dare go over there because who knows what lurks down there. You can't see down there very clearly. And who know, I mean, I was five. I didn't know where Jaws comes from, right? But he could be down there. Well, my dad, he's in the deep end, and he begins to encourage me to jump off the diving board, to which I responded, no. Um, oh, come on, Jeffrey. You, it, you're, you're a great swimmer. You can do it. It's, it'll be so much fun. You'll love it. Well, I knew better than that. The diving board is scary and dangerous, and the deep end is terrifying because you can't, I mean, it looks like there's a little round thing down there, but you can't see down there very well, you know. And, oh, come on, Jeffrey, he says. I, I'm right here. I'll catch you. I'll ne I would never let anything happen to you. Well, with that, <laughs> I didn't have an argument. So I, I made my way to the diving board. It was way down at the other. I don't think I'd ever been at that end of the yard. And so I get down there, and I climb up onto the diving board. And, whew, it was hard, higher than I thought. I was, I was looking down at Daddy. And I was terrified. But I looked at my dad with his arms opened, and I jumped. And my dad proved that he was trustworthy. His hands made me safe. In fact, I don't even think he actually was holding me up at all. He just put his hands on me so that he, I knew he was there, right? But see, I didn't just trust my dad because he said so. He had demonstrated his faithfulness so many times before that I knew I could trust him. And then in trusting him here, he affirmed his trustworthiness all that much more. And I trusted him all that much more. There's no one else I would have trusted because I didn't have the same proof. Even my mom. She used to tell me that the other kids made fun of my hair because they were jealous of me. So I knew my mom was a liar not to be trusted. <laughs> but my dad, see, I was, I was convinced that I could trust him. Faith and reason work together to draw us into a deeper relationship with God. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1. Verse 1. We'll stop mid-sentence here. Verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, it'll continue, but let me just say genre is really important when we read different books of the Bible, because it affects how we read them. For example, I'm going to read Leviticus, which is like a law code, a whole lot differently than I read the Psalms, which is poetry, and Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature. 
Um, you know, Luke, Gospel of Luke, that's along the lines of a peer-reviewed historical narrative as opposed to an epic narrative. It has elements consistent with the scientific and, and medical works of the day. So it should be understood as a precise form of historical literature. The fact remains that Luke and Acts are even today very important, even to secular historians. John Nolan said this, Luke begins with a carefully composed literary preface which has, deliberate, has a deliberately secular style and invites comparison of his work with that of the historians of his day. Robert Stein said Luke's gospel begins with a literary prologue that ranks among the best Greek literature of the first century. In verse 2, Luke's going to appeal to the eyewitnesses, but here in verse 1, he talks about what has been accomplished, and he says, among us. And the question is, who is the us? So he's probably not traveling alone, and he's, he's writing to Theophilus, but it seems to have been a work commissioned by Theophilus. In fact, Theophilus means friend of God or lover of God, which gives us a clue as to where some things that might be going on here. It could be just a proper name. It could also be a pseudonym. Um, but it, it, some suggest it could also address a general audience of Christians and not an individual. I don't think there's much support for that. I think it's a, it, we're definitely talking about an individual. So the, the word us could refer to Christians supposing that Luke was a convert at the time, which I think he was. It could also include Theophilus in that. Perhaps it's a reference to Gentile Christians, since we see Greek names in this context. But I, I think that Luke and Theophilus were close. And I, it's been suggested, I think there's, there's um, this is, this is a, a good, there's strong support for this. Theophilus was a high-ranking official, and Luke was probably his, a servant or a slave of Theophilus as a physician. Um, and, and I think what had been probably been happening is that they'd been attending Christian gatherings. And they were probably what we call catechumen. Those were the people that would come to church. They were still learning and growing before they would be baptized. Um, and they were attending the services. And the way it would work is that, that everybody would come in and be engaged in the, some of the singing and teaching and stuff. And then they would dismiss everybody but the baptized believers and participate in communion um, and other sacred things. And so uh, at the time, I think that Luke and Theophilus were still kind of ruling what's called the rule of faith. That just, that list of facts, uh, the list of biblical truths. So like the Trinity, the virgin birth, you know, um, the atonement, the atonement death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, this list of biblical truths, eventually that got evolved into the Apostles' Creed. But I think that they were still learning the, these things, and they were preparing for baptism, but Theophilus had some questions, maybe doubt. So he commissioned Luke. And I think it kind of went like this. This is how I kind of imagine it, okay, because I have a wild imagination. Theophilus has one of those silk or like polyester button shirts with the big collar and like the wallpaper pattern from the 70s. You know what I'm talking about? And then he had like 
salmon-colored or brown nylon slacks with white loafers. And he has big sunglasses and a martini in one hand and a cigar in the other. And he's on a chase lounge next to the pool in Naples, Florida. And you don't mess with this guy um, because this is the, he has this look like, I'm semi-retired from the mafia, but I can still hide a body. And Luke, he calls Luke over. And, and Luke's younger. And Luke has this like shoulder-length hair and that, you know that collared shirt that opens up at the top but doesn't have any buttons that they wore like in the 60s and 70s, you know what I'm talking about, right? And, and so he comes over, and, and uh, the officer's like, hey, uh, Luca, go make sure all of this is true, will you? Sure thing, boss. Hey, but uh, don't tell him who sent you, okay? You got it, boss. What do I say? Well, you're a good boy, Luca. Just tell him... Uh, just tell him a friend of God sent you. Anything you say, boss. And he runs off in his poofy pirate polo shirt. So, I watch way too many mafia movies. I, you're never going to see Luke and Theophilus the same way anymore. <laughs> what are they, from Brooklyn? I think Luke and Theophilus felt like they, they needed more certainty. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. Isaiah 118, rather, Isaiah 118 says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Using, using reason is perfectly biblical. In Corinth, Paul used reason to convince people. In Acts 18.4, this is what it says. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Either way, Luke makes a distinction between us and between his, his us, right? And the eyewitnesses that he's employed as sources for his research. Verse 2 of Luke 1. That was a lot on verse 1, huh? Verse 2. Just as those who are who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. We'll stop there. So Luke hears with his posse, whoever these people are, and, and he experiences something consistent with the testimony of the eyewitnesses. But Luke and Theophilus were not eyewitnesses, which is important because that helps us to be able to relate with them. We are not eyewitnesses. So we rely on Act on an accurate testimony to know the gospel. Now, through faith, we then experience what God's doing, but, but we didn't see these things firsthand. And so this is what Luke is proposing to present, and, and it's what we see throughout the New Testament is an accurate testimony of what happened. Verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why is Luke writing? Because it seemed like a good idea to him. He had done the research by interviewing eyewitnesses and examining the facts. He probably interviewed most of the, the 12, as well as Mary, the, the mother of Jesus. And in fact, her testimony, I think, is going to play a huge role in the next few weeks as we read through Luke. I think it's her testimony to Luke that plays a huge part in this whole Advent Christmas season, which we 
are blessed to actually be able to go through our series in Luke right at those right, right marks. A form of investigation that he did, which he says, having followed all things closely, this gives him credibility. And, and he's asserting this credibility before he even begins the narrative. It's a, it's a reasonable endeavor that Luke is going through. Stein said this, For Luke, the main purpose of the prologue was to establish his credibility as a historian. And he blew that one out of the water. As we know, historians today still marvel at Luke's work. This means that of this, of this narrative, um, or rather, it, this narrative that he's giving is an orderly account that's the means by which he, he did this, an orderly account. Um, and that could mean chronological order, but it probably has, he probably has more of a thematic order in mind. It appears that he's taking chunks of time and then giving a narrative within those chunks of time. And, and we're going to, I think we, this is because we're going to notice some similar events in other Gospels. And some are clearly the same event, but for example, there are some difference in similar sermons that Jesus gave or the way that the parables are articulated. And, and that could be because the authors are summarizing these accounts, but it could also be because they're separate incidents. Like I've preached the same sermon in several different places at different times, and I've preached it a little bit differently each time. So in fact, between first and second service, um, it's even different sometimes because they're my test subjects. So you're lucky to be in second service. I've already, it's already been tested. Um, but there are several valid reasons why chronologies, the chronologies in these, in the gospels might not line up. In fact, it would actually make sense that Luke may not have been concerned with it, with it, an exact chronology because it would have been more difficult for him to reconstruct uh, that chronology with the wide range of witnesses and, uh, and facts that he, or witnesses that he interviewed in, in different facts, um, it would have been more difficult. So it would make more sense that he would say, these things happened over in this time period. These things happened over in this time period. These things happened over in this time period. And to arrange his gospel this way. And verse 3 is also where Luke's initial recipient is identified. In all likelihood, Theophilus was a socially respected and prosperous person. He may have used Theophilus as an, as an alias. I think this is fairly likely, uh, particularly if he's like a Roman official that needed to keep some anonymity as Christianity, as Christians are beginning to become more and more persecuted. Uh, clearly, he wasn't an ordinary person. He's probably a very important person. And at the same time, though, it seems clear that Luke had a wider audience in mind. So I think that Luke was had an understanding that he would send this off to Theophilus, but it would eventually be copied and distributed uh, throughout the church. It's in verse 4 that we get to Luke's purpose, which is what we've titled our service, or rather our series after. Luke 1.4, it says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Now, knowing the truth can strengthen our faith. I suppose for some people, just plain blind faith is enough. But that can hold true for any religion or worldview. In fact, there's this idea out there called relativism, relativism that teaches that 
Whatever you believe is true for you as long as you're sincere. That the only absolute is that there are no absolutes. But here's the thing. If all roads lead to Rome, Google Maps is a giant racket. Like, if you believe that all roads lead to Rome, you leave a, live a practical hypocrisy every time you look at a map. Often, it's discovering the truth that leads us to faith and faith that opens us to deeper, deeper truth. Faith and reason work together to sanctify us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Being certain of the truth is transformative because we always act according to what we believe. I would, in fact, I would take that so far as to say that when we sin, it's because we believed a lie. This is how Satan deceives us. He doesn't just go to Eve in the garden and say, Eve, why don't you just eat the fruit, curse God and die, huh? Satan's from Brooklyn too. No, just curse God and die. No, that was Job's wife. That's, that's not how Satan talks. Our enemy is way more seductive than Job's wife. Can you imagine being married to her, by the way? Like, I think we need some counseling, honey. <laughs> this is how the serpent, the serpent pulled off his evil scheme. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. This is how he pulls off his evil scheme. He says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Hath God really said? He doesn't just come out and oppose the truth that we know. He uses the scripture and calls it into question. How do you live with that nagging woman? Doesn't the Bible say it's better to live in the corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife? It's in Proverbs. It's in the Bible. Isn't her nagging a form of unfaithfulness? God wouldn't want you to stay with her, would he, Job? Doesn't God want you to be happy? Hath God really said? You see, God has revealed himself with words. And his words are trustworthy. The way to be separated from God is to be separated from his word. And Satan knows that. God's word is sufficient for us. It is sufficient to teach us who God is. It is sufficient to lead us to salvation. It is sufficient as the foundation upon which we are sanctified and made like Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture, all scripture, it says, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, there are those within the church who would convince us that the Bible doesn't always mean what it seems to mean. Uh, the big one today deals with gender and sexuality. First, they call into question the meaning of the texts. They call into question, then, the reliability of the text, how, how it was transmitted to us. Then they call into question the relevance of the text. Maybe... 
maybe God would change his mind for our culture today because we're so much more sophisticated. Then they call into question God's motive in allowing the text to remain. And then finally they suggest that it is God who needs to change. Denise showed me a woman on... Okay, I'll just say. It was a woman on TikTok. Um, you know, the locus of reliable facts and information. This woman suggests that when the Gentile woman brought her daughter to be healed... And Jesus said, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This woman suggested that this, that, that this Gentile woman spoke truth to power when she replied, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat under the table, or even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is in Mark 7, by the way. And then, and, and then she said that Jesus repented of his racism and then healed the daughter. What? This is a classic example of twisting the meaning of God's word to suit your unbiblical worldview. Namely, that even Jesus sinned. See, because if we can convince people that God sinned, what power does the scriptures have? If God is not infallible, then his words are certainly not infallible, and perhaps we are sophisticated enough to speak truth to power and correct some of the bad teachings in the Bible. Hmm. Now, if you read Mark 7, 24 through 30 in context, it should become clear and very apparent to you that Jesus intended to heal, heal the girl all along. His, his hesitant statement would have pointed to the implicit prejudices of the people that surrounded him. He was pointing out their sin. And, and particularly even the Pharisees who were questioning him at the beginning of the chapter. You know, Jesus could have just healed the girl and said nothing. But by doing it the way he did, he was actually breaking down racial prejudice, not being forced to repent of it. God has revealed himself with words for us to believe. We should want to know, well, first we should want to know what to believe, or what we believe, rather. But we should want to know why we believe what we believe. And this is why Luke gave us his gospel. Some of what we will do in Luke will be apologetic in nature. Some of you know what that means. Apologetics is just giving a defense uh, for our faith and our, our worldview. But I'm hoping and praying that we will go beyond merely proving the facts. Luke uses reason to lead and to affirm faith. For many of us, the facts, the truth, is what led us to believe. But the faith is what led us to the throne of God. You can believe the facts and have no relationship. Hebrews 11.1 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, God has given us enough to trust Him. And from there, we know that we can trust what we may not be able to verify because God has revealed his trustworthiness to us. Faith and reason work together to confer God's message to us. 
And I believe that's Luke's heart when he's writing that we should, quote, have certainty. Certainty is more than just believing a fact. It is being convinced to the point of being changed or transformed. Since the Bible's a book about God, the operative question in Luke is, who is Jesus? Well, I believe that as we study Luke, we will come to know him more and that knowing him, our lives will be deeply affected by the following key truths. I've got six of them here. The first one is this. God the Son stepped down from his throne to dwell among us in our broken world. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We'll be looking at that over the next four weeks. Secondly, Jesus lived as a regular human and yet led a sinless life. Hebrews 4, 14 through 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Thirdly, Jesus laid down his life for us and took our sin upon himself at the cross. Romans 5. Starting in verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Fourth, just as he conquered sin at the cross, he conquered death at the grave where he rose on the third day. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. For I delivered to you first, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So for number five, so for those of us who have repented of our sins and have placed our faith in Jesus, we are the recipients of his eternal promises, his eternal inheritance. Romans 8.14, this is one of my favorite passages. Romans 8.14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By the way, that sons language, that's not speaking of gender. It's speaking of status. So you have the status of the highest heir. You've received, the you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And lastly, this is important. We can be certain of God's favor. We have confidence in the work of Christ because God has demonstrated that his word is true. And because of that, we can live transformed lives here and now.
Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. Today, we're going to remember that. We're going into a season where we look at the incarnation of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the nativity. The word became flesh. He, he walked among us without sin, and he took the due penalty for our sin, the sins of his elect, on himself. This morning, we're going to remember him by receiving communion. This is a reminder of the new covenant in his blood. The bread represents the body which was beaten on our behalf. The wine or juice in our case represents the blood which was poured out as a covering for our sin. We are to receive this as an act of worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. The Bible warns us not to partake in an unworthy manner. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 29. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We're going to we're going to wait to partake, and we'll partake together um, while the worship band, they'll come and play a song for us. This will give you some time to make something right. Spend some time praying and repenting, giving thanks for the blood of Jesus. Maybe you need to make something right by pulling your phone out, sending a text or an instant message to someone. Take some time and do it even if it's just the start of a longer conversation. Look upon these elements and wonder of the truth of God's grace as we have some time to reflect on the fact that our faith in the body and the blood of Jesus to save us from our sin is a reasonable faith. Let us pray. Oh, holy God, we confess our sins to you. We humbly come knowing that our sin and your holiness are objectively true. And it is our sin that separates us from you because you are holy. Forgive us, O oh God. We have not loved you with all our heart, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have needed forgiveness lest we perish eternally. God, I pray that not one person in this place that we have set aside for your worship would depart here without knowing that forgiveness. Holy God, we, we believe. Help our unbelief. Give us that which we need to know you are trustworthy. Help us trust that which you have given no more than your word to rely on. Thank you that you have revealed yourself 
with words that are reliable. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive this sacred feast. You've given us mercy that we may be people of mercy. And it is by your mercy that the blood of Jesus was poured out on that horrible, beautiful cross. Lord, humble us now as we prepare to receive this holy meal in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. opening up this is a two-sided chalice here the bottom piece has your bread in it kind of pull that open and take the bread out there for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and we'd given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let us partake second piece here can be messy if you're not careful. I'm going to pop that open a little bit, nice and slowly. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Paul, Paul continues, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we cry out, come Lord Jesus. We await your holy presence and long to serve in humility and gratitude on your terms in your kingdom forever. Lord, we offer ourselves over to you as a living sacrifice of praise as we enter our week and our mission field in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.